Hello everybody and welcome to Chip Up Podcast. My name is Chris, I'm your host, and today we're going to be discussing a review of the Open Championship at Royal Portrush, won by Shane Lowry. If you like what you hear today, go check us out on www.chipoutgolf.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Chip Out Golf and on YouTube at Chip Out Golf. You can also get in touch at chipoutgolf at gmail.com or answer your questions on the podcast. So, where do we start? Shane Lowry, one of Ireland's finest players, took home the Open Championship at Royal Portrush, the 148th Open, with what turned out to be a six-shot victory. That's one thing that I think that's been uh, gone under the radar, was actually how dominant Lowry's win was. Six-shot victory over Tommy Fleetwood. He finished at 15 under par, with a final round 72 to seal one of the most special victories we've seen pretty much since Darren Clark won the Open in 2011. There were so many storylines going into this week at Portrush. There were so many storylines, and we're going to get on to the likes of McElroy and Kepka even after this, after talking about Lowry. But basically, everything was lived up to the expectation that it was. We had all kinds of weather. We had everything you want from a Lynx test. The course at Portrush just looked absolutely sensational. And the fans were out in full force. And basically everything that, apart from maybe Macro missing the cut, everything that could happen did happen. And it was just spectacular. It was really, truly special. And obviously no more special than for Shane Lowry, who 10 years after winning his home Irish Open as an amateur, 10 years later, he returns to Ireland, Northern Ireland this time, to win the Open Championship. Really emotional scenes on the 18th hole. And Lowry was just fantastic all week long. He looked pretty dominant. I mean, he could have taken a big lead going into the second round, and going into the third round, sorry. But he sort of stumbled a bit at the end of his second round. He was ahead by two with seven holes to play. But for Lowry, he actually had the worst side of the draw as well. He played on the, the tough time. He started at the morning-afternoon draw. And all the other players in the afternoon-morning draw were having success because they were managing to take the course at its easiest. And Lowry played the course in its toughest over the first few days. And, you know, he somehow managed to make the most of it. We ended up being tied for lead. It was not quite a wire-to-wire victory because JB Holmes was, had a one-shot lead over Lowry in the first round. But it felt like pretty much a wire-to-wire victory. Lowry was at the top the entire time. And it was just one of those special weeks for Shane Lowry that he exercises the demons of Oakmont uh, three years ago now where he blew a four-shot lead going into the final round. He exercises a lot of demons of past failures and, and, you know, the lack of wins that he's had in his career. He's had some big wins and he's had memorable wins as well. But he hasn't won too often. He he won uh, only before this year. He's only won twice as a professional before 2019. And, you know, when you think about that's 10 years of being a professional. And, of course, one of those was a huge tournament, which is actually, I believe, next week. The uh, what was previously the WGC Bridgeton Invitational is now the... FedEx Jude Classic. But it really does take Shane Lowry's career to the next level, which we thought it was going to be for a long time, and he's been really in the limelight this year as well. But now his career has really moved on to the next level. He's going to be... You think he's definitely going to be in the Ryder Cup next time round? He's, you know, looking on on the top ten in the world. He's a major champion. Open champion. There's not many people who can call themselves an open champion in today's game. And it's just such a special honour. The champion golfer of the year. It really just... It's quite unbelievable that Shane Lowry won. And if you told me at the start of the week that Shane Lowry was going to be the champion, first of all, I wouldn't have believed you. Second of all, I would have probably said, I'll be very delighted with that. Because even though I would have liked McRoy or 
one of the home, like the real Northern Irish home favourites to win. Like Lowry is pretty much the second best bet, at least especially for the Irish faithful. And it was incredible scenes. Port Rush just looked like an unbelievable place to be that night on yesterday night. It really would have been spectacular to be there. But there's no denying that Lowry fully deserved it. He was just fantastic from tee to green. His short game, we all know his short game is very special. But basically when his tee to green game is on and he's putting well, then he's pretty tough to beat on a Lynx course because the putter is usually what can... You know, he can miss a few knee knockers from here time to time. And he wasn't, you know, lethal from close range this week. He was good, but he wasn't like Jordan Speed lethal. His just all-round game was so good that it didn't need to be lethal with the putter. But he was good with the putter. He got hot. He made putts at just the right time. He didn't make mistakes. No mental errors. Everything was played perfectly. He, he plotted his way around Portrush brilliantly. And honestly, he was head and shoulders above the entire rest of the field. I mean, he beat Fleetwood by six shots. Then he beat Finau in third place by eight shots. And then Westwood and Kepka were nine shots further back. So when you think of it like that, only one player was within eight shots of Shane Lowry, which is just dominant, really, when you think about it. And he didn't even seem to be hitting, you know, first gear, apart from the Saturday, of course, where he was truly on fire. It was just incredible performance with those birdies at the end. I mean, the shot into 16 sticks with me the most. And then, of course, he nearly held his pitch on 17 as well. It was very, very special. And it's an Open that will live long in the memory, hopefully, the Open comes back to Port Rush sooner rather than later because it's been one of the best Opens in recent memory. And the course is just truly spectacular. I mean, Irish golf is, you know, pretty much world-renowned for being some of the best Lynx golf you can play. So it would make sense that, especially when, I suppose, Northern Ireland in particular is part of the United Kingdom, having golf courses from Northern Ireland as part of the Open Road, so especially a course like Port Rush, that has been hosted as an Open Championship course and has had such success and such positive feedback this week, having the Open at Portrush again is very, just seems like a logical logical step. So I hope the RNA do that. I hope they bring it back and I hope they bring it back soon. Chance for McElroy to get some redemption. And speaking of McElroy, the difference between how McElroy and how Lowry approached the week is what I want to talk about here. We know that McElroy missed the cut. He missed the cut on the number at plus two. But the way he did it was, well, one of the most exciting miscuts I think you'll ever see. He started with a quadruple bogey eight on the very first hole of his round. That didn't just take the wind out of the sails of, of McRoy himself, but it just sort of seemed to deflate everybody. The whole atmosphere just changed. It was really, really a depressing moment, a really depressing moment. And I mean, it was an extremely stupid double bogey. There was nerves in there, of course, and you can accommodate nerves for being out of bounds with his first tee shot. So his very first tee shot goes out of bounds. A lot of players did go out of bounds this week. You know, the out of bounds is there. If you hook it or slice it, you're gone. So for McElroy, his natural miss, I guess, if he's playing his natural shot shape, would be a hook. And, you know, he's really nervous. He, he smother hooks an iron. Fair enough. He gets all of it. He hits it perfectly. Fair enough. You, you were nervous. Okay. Second time round, find the fairway. Find the fairway of your second ball, and the worst you're making is a six. Instead, not only does he not find the fairway, which we'd seen throughout the morning, is a recipe for disaster with the pin position on the back left on the first round. He then proceeds to not lay up and go for the shot, 
Which was really, really stupid, really. You know, that was just dumb. Everyone, you can say he got unlucky that it ran past the bunker and went into the bush, but, you know, you know the ball's going to come out left of a heavy lie. Lay up, take your medicine, go to the front right of the green, or, you know, 50 yards back, try and make a par. You don't need to go for the pin. You're not going to hit the, the green. Instead, he goes for it, swerves it into a bush. He's got to take a drop, doesn't get up and down. It's an eight. And then that was the story of pretty much the late part of the round. He got it back to three over. And when you think about it, three over is really not that bad after, you know, halfway through the first round. It wouldn't have kept up with Lowry's pace because Lowry, you know, was pretty dominant. But all he had to do was play 10 under from there on in. You know, all he had to do. But all he had to do was play 10 under from there on in to finish third. And, you know, that's what all it took. All it would have taken. And for McElroy, he's more than capable. I mean, he shot six under the day after. So it was just the, the finish on Saturday, which was... Excuse me, the finish on Thursday, which was just inexcusable. I spoke about this and had a, like, a bit of a rant about Rory on Thursday and the podcast, but to blow those shots away and miss that short 16-inch putt where he just went and tried to tap it in and he missed it, you know, that ended up being the margin that he missed the cut by. It was an incredible fight back on Friday. Pretty much the most exciting viewing uh, other than watching the final round or Shane Lowry's third round, was watching McElroy try and make the cut. Everyone was so up for it. Everyone was so excited about McElroy nearly making the cut. And it was such a shame that he didn't because it would have been truly special. He shot the new course record in trying to make the cut. It was the lowest round of the first two days. And that's unbelievable that he could start with a 79, come back with a 65. 14 shots better. But it just wasn't to be. And you know... I do feel sorry for him because obviously he was devastated by what happened. But the difference that between him and Lowry, this is what I wanted to talk about. Lowry, he didn't have any expectations on him going into the week. You would probably have to say. I mean, he was the second highest ranked Irish golfer. But you wouldn't say he was, you know, top of the list of the centre of attention. Because he wasn't from Northern Ireland. He wasn't one of the big three, being Clark McRoy and, and McDowell, who from Portrush, who were going to get all the attention. Obviously, as an Irishman, he was going to get a load of support. And so when he had his first round, then expectation rose a little bit more because he was in in contention. Then after he ended up tied for the lead after his second round, the expectations on him over the weekend were huge. Absolutely huge. The crowds were enormous. Everyone was thinking, you know, you're our last hope. Come on, Shane. We're all rooting for you. The pressure was huge. And all of a sudden, Lowry had even more pressure on him almost than McElroy did. And okay, he didn't have so long to have to wait and think about it. Like Macro probably had years to think about the expectations that were on him. But Lowry embraced the expectations. On Saturday, he had one of the best rounds. Like he said it was the most fun he'd ever had on a golf course. Which ironically is what Macro said the day before when he shot his 65. And you think about Macro saying, oh, it's some of the most fun I've ever had on a golf course. Shooting a 65 in front of these guys. This is what his attitude should have been going into the tournament. And it's what Lowry's attitude was over the weekend and it was what got him over the line. There's no pressure on me in the sense of people are going to lose their jobs, lose you know millions of pounds if I don't win. That's not the case. People just want you to win. They're rooting for you to win. They don't like necessarily expect you to win and if you don't win, their lives are going to be ruined. That's not how it works. Their lives are just going to be made better for a, for a short period of time and you know have memories that they can live forever because you've won. And that's the way Lowry saw it. He was like, I have a chance to do something special. It's not necessarily that I've got a burden of having to do something special. It's an opportunity to do something special in front of my home fans and have 
you know, one of the greatest performances, greatest victories, greatest memories I'll ever have in my, not just my golfing life, but in my life in general. But Macro wasn't like that. He was like, he didn't want to embrace the expectation like Larry did. He was saying, instead of saying, oh, I want to do something special, it's an opportunity to do something special. He's thinking, you know, oh, it's just another golf tournament before the week, he's saying. It's just another golf tournament. Trying everything he could, not playing his home Irish Open two weeks ago, playing in Scotland, staying away from home until, like, Tuesday. He just deflected and deflected and tried to get away from expectation. And then eventually, like I said in last week's preview show, the expectation builds up, builds up, and all of a sudden he, in his head, is expecting to do incredibly well because he's pushed that expectation off him, and the expectation is still there, you know? Everyone still thinks that Rory's going to do well, so he's not managed to get rid of that. And all of a sudden the pressure on him is doubled because he's put pressure on himself, and he eventually crumbled under that pressure. Macro has never, like, been renowned as someone who can handle pressure very well in the sense of um, expectations. He can't handle expectations well at all. He's been able to produce great golf under pressure in the heat of the moment. But recently, like when, since he's reached top dog status, he's never been very good at closing out tournaments because when people expect him to win, he tends not to win. Macro's record of winning tournaments is so poor when you think about the, the caliber of player he is. And it's not going to get any better unless he truly embraces the fact that he just has to go out there and has an opportunity to do something special. And I don't think he sees it like that, or at least he didn't, he tried not to see it like that this week. And that was why Lowry did so well. He thought, this is a chance for me to go and do something special. I won't regret it for the rest of my life if I give it my all. And, you know, Macaro will, will be regretting this moment for a long, long time. You can guarantee that pretty much until the Open comes back to Portrush. My advice to Macaro would be, Go and play in Ireland. Go and play in the Irish Open. Don't disrespect necessarily the, your fans by doing that. Who who just showed you on Friday how much they care about you, how much you mean to them, and how much they support you. If Rory doesn't go to the Irish Open next year, I'll be extremely disappointed in him. And, you know, I'll lose a lot of respect for him because what the Irish fans did for Rory this week will mean a lot to him. He needs to realise that he's got to... There's no pressure on him to perform for them it's an opportunity to make them proud and make them happy. And that's how Larry saw it. And that's why he succeeded. In terms of a few other notables, Sunday produced an incredibly, incredibly difficult day, which was brilliant to watch, I have to say. It was really great to watch. Justin Rose had a 79. Jordan Spieth had a 77. Players struggled left, right and centre um, when the conditions got extremely tough for about an hour in the middle of the round or about 45 minutes where they were just brutal. And if you could get out of there with, you know, three over for that 45 minutes, you'd be doing well. Lowry's, you know, one over round was just utterly sensational. In the last, like, 10, 15 groups, it was pretty much the best score other than Tony Finau's even par round. But one player who had the worst day of all was JB Holmes. And he went into it in third place and he shot an 87, 16 over par he went from 3rd to 67th. And one notable thing about this was Brooks Kepka, who, you know, the ma the major man, everyone was looking at Kepka entering the final round at um, 9 under par to potentially go and charge onto Lowry, charge onto Tommy. But he didn't get manage to put any pressure on Lowry. I mean, if he got to probably 12 or 13 under, Lowry could have seen that name and, and thought, uh-oh, Kepka's coming for me. But Kepka didn't, um, didn't manage to do it. He started with four straight bogeys. He got an eagle on the 5th, but... 
he didn't putt well enough all week. I'll get onto that in a second, but part of the reason why Kepka was, you know, unhappy was playing with JB Holmes. And of course, JB was going to be slow because of the weather. The round was pretty slow anyway. JB was always going to be slower. And he was also going to be slow because he took nearly 15 more shots than Brooks did. But obviously, JB is one of the slowest players on the PJ Tour. It's pretty desperate stuff to watch when he's playing. It's really not good. He hasn't earned himself many supporters, which is a shame because his golf is fantastic, but he hasn't earned himself many fans with the way he plays. And I mean, it all added up to the worst final round score in 53 years at the Open at 87. 53 years! That's truly remarkable. But yeah, Kepka wasn't too happy about it. He, you know, he came out afterwards and said, he chastised JB. He said it wasn't actually that bad for JB, but he's still really slow. He's got to pick up the pace. And I like how Brooks, being now in such a powerful position, isn't afraid to talk about slow play in such a blunt manner. Because it needs to be done. People need to realise that, you know, something has to happen with slow play. And Brooks is definitely the champion of playing quickly because he's, he's proved that you don't need to play slow to be successful. He plays really fast and wins majors. This week, however, for him, the putter wasn't good enough. And I think a lot of players struggled... It really showed up that a lot of players really, really struggled on the slower greens. You saw some fantastic putters like Rose and Spieth. They had bad days on Sunday, but they, you know, they played pretty well all week long. But there's no doubt the pace of the greens was suited to players who play more consistently on the European Tour because they're a little bit slower to protect the golfers from when the wind, the wind potentially did come to stop balls moving like they did at St. Andrews about four years ago. And play will have to be suspended in strong winds. No one wants to see that. They want to see people struggling in strong winds. And for Kepka, I mean, Kepka has a lot of experience on the European Tour and Challenge Tour, which is partly, why I believe, why he's so successful. But he didn't have the pace of the greens this week. He really didn't. He felt like he had to hit, give the putter a bit more of a hit. And Kepka's stroke is quite a, kind of a loop. And it really works well on um, fast greens where he's not have to concern himself so much with pace. He just lets the putter do the work and the, you know, he can be smooth in it. He can try and get that loop perfectly, make central contact with the ball. And as long as he reads it right, it's going in. But within, you know, when he has to actually give the putter a hit, and I always find that anyway, when you have to give putter a hit, it becomes much, much harder to hit, have a good stroke on the ball. Um, case in point number one, Lee Westwood, <laughs> who... As good as Lee is, as good as he played from tee to green, and as much as everybody loves him, my word, that putting stroke is just ugly. Oh my word, is it ugly? It, you know, make like people like Ben Crenshaw would have to close his eyes every time he sees Lee Westwood play. And it's funny because Westwood is forty-seven or forty-eight years old now. You know, he's nearing fifty. He came fourth in the Open here. He shot six under final round. He said tied with Kepka, tied fourth. And he managed to finish tied fourth, despite having that putting stroke, which is just, oh, it's not nice. It really is not nice. Sometimes it goes, sometimes he's smooth with it in his practice strokes. And at start of rounds, he's quite smooth with it, as evidenced by the start of his round on Saturday and Sunday. But as it goes along, it gets so jerky. I mean, he missed like a one foot putt, which he lined up, got everything ready, marked it, put it down, read the putt, lined it up and still missed it from about a foot. Because he goes back about an inch and then shoves it forward, yanks it left. And whenever you're like, you're getting all the power in the follow through and not in the backstroke, then you're really, really going to struggle on. Well, I think you struggle probably on more on quick greens. It's actually better for him 
on <laughs> the slower greens because you can judge the pace a little bit better, but I just don't see how you can be well, winning the open with a punk stroke like that. Okay, you know, a bit more acceleration on on links greens. I actually I actually like that as a sort of a technique. But Westwoods is too jerky. It's too yippy. I mean, it's borderline yippy, really. Obviously, he's able to control it. He's able to hold putts um, from time to time. But on the short ones, he's so suspect, it seems. And I don't know. He's still having too many free putts around. And I don't think it's ever going to change at this point, which is a shame because Westwood deserves a major for how talented he is from tee to green. But, you know, with that putting stroke, it's just not going to come around like that. A couple of other notable finishes. Ricky Fowler had a good week, finishing tied six along with Danny Willett, who's still on his return back to form. He's going up into the top 60 in the world now, I think. And Robert McIntyre, who shot an early round three under par, like an early in the day three under par before the leaders had even teed off got himself to five under and he just sat in the clubhouse and watched him go from like 30th position to sixth when these horrible conditions were coming in and he must have just been loving it he picked up an absolutely huge check i think he would have picked up like two or three hundred thousand dollars or you know a couple hundred thousand pounds at for finishing six at the open (laughs) all because he came came in with a 68 early in the day when the conditions weren't so bad still a great round for the day but you know Fantastic work from McIntyre. He's nearly up inside the top 100 in the world now, and oh, what a season he's having. He's going to be rookie this year, for sure, it seems, between him and Miliozzi, at least. But, you know, if he can pick up a win, he'll definitely pick up rookie of the year, I think. And Tyrrell Hatton also finished sixth. A good week for Tyrrell. Defending champion Francesco Molinari just finished outside the top 10. Again, like McIntyre, he had an early round 66, which was really special. Going from plus two, you know, starting the day in, like, the 50th position or something, Ending up in 11th because he just absolutely shot through the field when those tough conditions came up. And just sat in the clubhouse watching himself go from 30th, 40th when he was finished to about 10th when he by the time it all was said and done. And like I said, Tony Finau finished third. Really good final round from Tony Finau. Pretty much the best of all the afternoon starters. Really, really well played to shoot even par in, in those conditions. That was sensational stuff. Finau's putter is still a little bit wobbly, a little bit dodgy, but if he can find an answer, find some, yeah, some answer on the greens, you think that first win in the PJ Tour is just around the corner. And I think if Tony Finau came over and played a few more European Tour events, I think he'd get a win as well, because like I said with Westwood, his putting stroke is actually more suited to slower greens, even though it's terrible putting stroke, I really don't like it, Westwood's. But Finau's is, I don't really like Finau's putting stroke either. But I think his has been more suited to slower greens as well. And with his length and with his fantastic long game. And he seems to play well in bad weather. I mean, he'd do really well in the European Tour. Maybe coming over a bit like Ricky Fowler did. You know, he came over, won the Scottish Open. And if you're able to win these European Tour events, it really progresses your career over on the PJ Tour. You know, just ask Brooks Kepka about that. And finally, Tommy. Tommy Fleetwood finished second place. Shot a final round 74. Didn't really happen for Tommy. I mean... He was managing to stay well like well in it and he had one of the best rounds going along with Lowry. It was pretty much the same score as Lowry after 12 holes. But basically he had a couple of really, really good chances to cut Lowry's lead to like one after two holes. He didn't take either of them. And then eventually Lowry's lead got bigger and bigger. It went to seven at one point after about 10 holes. Went really, really high. Came back down and then, but then a double bogey for Fleetwood on the 15th hole. 
put pay to his chances. He did really well to hold on to second place. You know, that's a lot of world ranking points, a lot of money. He's up to 13 in the world again. But I've said it before with Tommy, he's got to get better when it matters in terms of the final rounds. If he wants to win more tournaments, it doesn't seem like he ever is truly in command of his entire game, especially the putting. He always seems like one part of it gets a little bit nervous, gets a bit twitchy in the final round. And it's he doesn't necessarily play bad final rounds. He's just not as good on the final round. And I don't know what it is, but he's got to put those demons to rest if he wants to start winning tournaments, especially majors. I really hope a major's around the corner for Tommy, but he's going to have to wait at least nine months before the next one. And, you know, I spoke about this on the preview show. The major schedule is... I don't like it at all because now we've got nine months to wait. I don't like it. I'd rather have the PGA after the Open, but we'll have to see whether, you know, that actually comes to fruition. But on the whole, once again, like I said, an incredible week at Portrush. I hope the RNA brings the Open back there very soon. And to be honest, I hope I get to go play there one day. It just looks incredible. One of those courses you just love to play, one of those bucket list courses. Okay, so real quick look towards next week and the future before we sign off next week is the wgc fedex st jude which is within replace of just the fedex st jude classic which dustin johnson won last year of course memorably holding his second shot into 18 to, to win quite remarkably but it's taken on wgc event status is his 50th year on the pj tour and i think maybe that's why the pj tour allowed this sort of change to happen i think it's taken from akron and putting it in Memphis at TPC Southwind, where they've hosted the FedEx St. Jude for nearly 30 years now. And this was the 50th edition last year of the FedEx St. Jude. So maybe a little bit of a memento, or a new chapter for the FedEx St. Jude. And making it a WGC event status, which means that you're going to get players playing this tournament that, you know, I've never played it before. You're going to get all the best players in the world, pretty much. Apart from Tiger, Francesca Molinari, and a few others like Ricky Fowler. But like 45 of the world's top 50 will be there. It's going to be a monumental field and it's going to be a great tournament. I'm looking forward to it. I've said before, however, that I do believe more World Golf Championships events should be outside America. It's hardly World Golf Championships if you've got three majors in America, which, okay, three majors in America, okay, fine. I can live with that. But if you're going to have three majors in America, start moving some World Golf Championships out. One in China... Okay, one in, excuse me, there's only two in America because there's one in Mexico, but it's just been moved a couple of years ago. But yeah, maybe leave the match play. I think take the match play to Europe. Reward Europe for being so good at match play compared to America and give like the match play to Europe. Like maybe Grand Sissier, what a brilliant place for match play. There's so many risk-reward holes. They'll be scoring unbelievably low. I mean, yeah, what a brilliant place for match play. In the altitude, get everyone in Switzerland. There's no doubt everyone's going to rave about it. I mean, it's got such history with Seve playing one of his most famous shots there. Yeah, I don't know. It's just my opinion, but I think they should move at least the match play around a bit. Try and make it one in each, like, major continent. And, you know, keep the FedEx St. Jude maybe in America. And then in that case, you've got four worldwide WGCs and then three majors in America. I mean, I doubt it's going to happen. I doubt two, it's only going to be ever less than two world golf championships in america but we'll just have to see we'll just have to see about that that's for this week i actually like dustin johnson again and because he's sort of defending champion it's a different event now but he is sort of the defending champion and he's not such a major player but he loves wgc's he really really loves wgc's and 
having won this tournament last year, it's the kind of tournament that DJ will bring his best to and, and win, I think. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. There's a lot of good players playing this week. A lot of money and points to play for. It'll be nice to see maybe someone in the... Much like Shane Larry did when he won this sort of tournament, this WGC Invitational four years ago. It'd be nice to see if someone like Shane Lowry, maybe a player, up-and-coming player in, in the 40s, 50s in the world, take home a big title and elevate their career and potentially push them onto majors. That would be really nice to see. So that's what I'm rooting for this week. And lastly, one quick new note of news. Romacker and Tiger Woods have signed up to play in a skins game in Japan on the 21st of October. Now, that sounds great to me. If you've never played skins format, it's pretty simple how it works. I mean, there's different variations of it, but the one I play with my friends, everyone plays the hole, and if one player wins outright, so if one player wins the hole outright, they get one skin. So let's say they win the first hole with a birdie, everyone else makes par or worse, that person who made a birdie gets a skin. Then let's say two or more people, all it needs to be is two, two or more people uh, make par on the second hole, which is the best score. All of a sudden that skin gets pushed onto the next hole, and then on the third hole, you're playing for two skins because that skin has been pushed. So if someone makes a hole in one and that's on the third hole, they'll pick up two skins. And, you know, you can push skins to about six or seven sometimes and then they'll get, you know, that'll be the crucial winning factor. And so I think it's going to be a four ball with Macro Woods Day and Hideki Matsuyama and Jason Day, excuse me. And that is going to be fun to watch. I'm going to try and tune into that because I love skins. Skins is one of the best formats of golf and... I think there should definitely be a PGA Tour tournament on it. I mean, it's not an official PGA Tour tournament. It's actually um, a build-up to the inaugural Zozo Championship next this week. But as an exhibition tournament, it sounds great. I mean, I worry about Tiger Woods' health, but still, I would pay to see that. Much, much better than watching Phil Mickelson versus Tiger Woods make, you know, $250 bets on making a hole-in-one when none of them actually pan out. I think it's much, much better that... Um, as a sort of a four-ball skins game. That could be really fun. So yeah, the inaugural Zozo Classic. Watch out for that week because at the start there'll be a skins game. So hopefully that'll be as fun as it sounds. Okay, that's all we got time for everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the open week as much as I did. It was a brilliant, brilliant week. Congratulations again to Shane Lowry. But yeah, thank you again for listening. Remember, if you like what you hear, go check us out at www.chipoutgolf.com. There's plenty of articles there and quizzes for you to get stuck into. Remember, you can check us out on Instagram at chipoutgolf, facebook.com forward slash chipoutgolf, and on YouTube at chipoutgolf. You can also get in touch at chipoutgolf at gmail.com, and we'll answer your questions on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. See you later. Happy golfing. <laughs>